around verse 33. But we looked last week, in fact we've looked at these last few weeks, it's what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, or the Beatitudes were the start of it. <coughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. And we recognised that this was a, that the Beatitudes themselves were a build up to, to the Christian faith, to being able to walk in the Christian way. We can't do it without Jesus. If you want to catch up with the study, it's online, calvarycalook.org. You can find it there. But we looked last week about being salt and light to the earth. How salt, if it loses those characteristics that, that are useful, then it, it ceases to be of any use. And that's the same with us. If we lose those Christian characteristics in our life, then we might as well not be Christians because really what we're doing is just going back into the world. We looked at the section that Jesus spoke about anger and lust and divorce and how so prevalent these things are today that there's so much anger in the world. There's so much lust in the world. And not just, I'm not just talking in a sexual sense. People just, their lust for money and power is just unbelievable. That They would just go to any length. And I've said this before, you know, you need to be careful out there because money is a great motive for a lot of people. And uh, there's some people would do anything for money. And we've seen that ourselves in the past, that people will kill for money. So don't think you need to have a lot of money for people to be coming against you. I've known a guy stabbed to death in the prisons when I worked in the prisons for five pounds. And that was not the fact that he had five pounds on him. <clears throat> that was the fact that somebody paid the other guy five pounds to kill somebody. That was how much his life was worth. And he did it because he wanted the money. So be careful. But notice when Jesus is speaking about things like anger and lust and divorce, that he, and, and as we go on here with this, these next few things that he speaks about, Jesus tells them what they know. Or what they think they know, you know. Again, you've heard it was said in times of old. People knew these things. And he continues in that theme here at, at verse 33. And he says again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, <coughs> or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, this is based on, the whole bit here is based on the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. And if you do, you know, there will be a punishment for it. Now, we, we nowadays always look upon that as being people who abuse the name of Jesus Christ, who use it as a swear word, and that's part of it. But here, in some measure, Jesus was not talking about that because the Jews, in some measure, avoid using the name of God in case something bad happens to them. We're actually talking about swearing an oath. In that third commandment, he was commanding the Jews, don't swear an oath falsely. Don't use the name of God to put yourself in a place where you're, where you're making a promise to somebody and then you end up breaking it. 
So it's it's not really about about you know using the name of Jesus Christ profanely, although that's part of it. The main thing that he's talking about here was swearing by the name or about the name falsely. We spoke about the two sort of main rabbis who were around at this time, Halel and Shammai. And Shammai was they were really quite tight, if you want to call it that. They were really quite into everything down to the very letter of the law. And you know, they were they were so religious in the thing and yet they missed the whole point, the freedom that Christ can bring. But they said the school of Shammai said that the truth must be told at all times. And so it should. The truth should be told at all times. But these people who followed that kind of doctrine, they took it to the nth degree that they didn't even observe the sort of social niceties, if you want to call it that. And the way I was thinking about it was that if if they saw a bride in the street and they walked up and... I mean, normally we would say, oh, you're looking lovely, darling, you know, I hope you have a nice day. They would say... You're pretty ugly, aren't you? you know, it's just, I don't hate your dress. I mean, this is the way they, they, they thought that you had to tell the truth all the time. Now, that's their opinion. That's not the truth. Because if it was a bride walking down the street, whether she was ugly or good looking, somebody thought she was good looking or they wouldn't marry her. Um, <laughs> so it was, it's one of these things that, you know, we should never let our Christian conscience stand in the way of good manners either we've no right to call people down for no reason whatsoever because generally when we do call people down it's not really the truth that we're speaking it tends to be our opinion as to what the truth should be so we, and that's the point that Jesus was making don't, don't put yourself in a place where you've made some sort of oath or promise to somebody and then you break it the common practice was to swear falsely and not keep it the giving, this was the giving of an oath to cover a lie or to cover hypocrisy. Two types of things happened in Jesus' days. There were, there were frivolous oaths and evasive oaths, as they talk about. The frivolous oaths were, were the things that we used to do. I used to do as a kid, cross my heart and hope to die. You know, and the last thing you were thinking about was crossing my heart and hope to die. You know, but but that was your way of, of trying to convince somebody that you were telling them the absolute truth. And these were the frivolous, typey things. This was the childish way that you dealt with people, that you made stupid promises about things or, or stupid oaths, that that type of thing, or you swore in your rabbit's foot, or you know, or. or I hate to say, even within the Christian church, we swear on the medals of St. Christopher and all this kind of thing. I mean, it's just all junk. It's just frivolous. And then there was something a wee bit more serious that was going on. They were called evasive oaths. Now, the Jews being the Jews at this point in time, they, they, they were, I suppose we could say they were quite reverent towards the name of God. So, if they wanted to make a deal with you, and, 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 and form a, a sort of covenant with you if you want to do that they would, they would try their best not to include the name of God in it just in case they had to break it because if they actually included the name of God within that covenant or within that oath then they were duty bound or they felt they were duty bound to keep it but if they could keep the name of God out of it then it was 
wasn't as strong enough so you could, you know, it was the typical Jew, you know, the OIV, you know, just kind of getting on with it. And that's really what Jesus was saying there, you know. It's, uh, don't swear by God, or don't swear by heaven, because that was, that was one of the things they swore by, to avoid using the name of God. I swear by heaven that I'll keep this promise to you, or I'll swear by Jerusalem. Or I'll swear by the, the earth, or I'll swear by my mother's life. You know, that type of thing. And, and rather than saying, I swear by God that I'll, that I'll do this, they didn't want to use the name of God because it would create a, 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 an oath to which they were absolutely bound. And as you can see what's going on here, it seems to be in some measure just a whole load of superstitious mumbo-jumbo. And Jesus says that at the end. He says, you know, just let your yes be your yes. You know, why should you be allowed to swear by heaven? Because it's God's throne room. And why should you be allowed to swear by earth? For it's God's footstool. So don't think that because you can keep the name of God out of your oath, that God's not in it, because God's in everything. He's there. He's part of it. He sees what we do. You know, one of the great times when they swore an oath was Peter in Caiaphas' garden the night that Jesus was arrested and taken and, and uh, three times someone came up to him and said you're a Galilean but you know with that guy Jesus no, no I wasn't with him and then it tells us the last time that he swore and he would swear something to the effect that you know on God's life I swear I don't know this man and of course the cock crowed and he went out and he wept bitterly because he realised what he'd done. And probably he would have realised this teaching that Jesus had given him. You know, that he was with him for three years and, and, and Jesus used this all the time. You can see it through all his parables, through all the things that he taught, that he was really taking all of this, what he said of the Sermon on the Mount, and he was splitting up and, and, and showing the practical examples all the way through. So Peter was broken hearted. Should we be swearing oaths? In a personal sense, no, we shouldn't. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Even today, the, 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 the Quakers won't swear an oath based on this scripture, which I don't think is right. I think if you're going into a court of law and you're asked to swear that you'll tell the truth, the only reason you're being asked to swear that you'll tell the truth is because you might tell a lie. And that, that's the fallen nature of man. If we were all good at telling the truth, we wouldn't have to take the oath to promise to tell the truth. In some measure, you know, Paul took a few oaths at times. I mean, he, he said to the Corinthians, he said, you know, by, by God himself I tell you the truth of this is that on the night that Jesus died, I, you know, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And even Jesus was involved in an oath when he was on trial. When, the, when the, the, the Caiaphas came to him and said, you know, I think the word he used was a jeer, but really what it means is, you, you, Jesus, you're telling us that you're the Son of God. Well, I want you to swear by the name of God that you are the Son of God. And Jesus didn't say, well, I'm not taking an oath or anything. He did tell him. He says, it is as you say. And that was all he ever said to him. So, Taking oaths in a frivolous sense or an evasive sense is, is not good. The Christian character should be such 
your character, our character that's built in us by the Holy Spirit should be such that when we say to somebody, yes, I'll do it, they can stand in that and say, well, Jim Tatton said yes, and I know he'll do it. Or Jim Tatton said no, and I know that he won't do it. You don't need to be making promises. You don't need to be making frivolous oaths. You don't need to be making evasive oaths, trying to sneak out of things. And then he goes on to say, verse 38, And you have heard that it was said, again he's reminding them of what was in the past, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I mean, many people think this is a law of vengeance, but it's not, it's a law of mercy. Because what the law was designed to do, and, and, and the point that Jesus was trying to get across here is that this law was designed to be officiated over by the judiciary, by the, the judges within the people. This wasn't supposed to be a personal thing. The eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth literally meant that. If you wanted, if you were damaged in some way, let's just say somebody knocked your teeth out, then the worst that, could, that you could actually ask the judge to take against them was to knock their teeth out. You couldn't ask for any more than that. that there, there was mercy in the sense that, that, that you couldn't go beyond that. And, and I say that because <clears throat> even today, you hear the people who maybe for some reason or other they get involved with a fight with a neighbour or whatever and, and they, they end up maybe breaking a gate or whatever so what happens then is somebody comes back and pans in all their windows and then they go back and scrape all their car and throw you know and the whole thing escalates into a, a total chaotic riot and Jesus is saying that that's not what the law's about. The law's about, yes, the law's about getting justice for you, but getting justice in the sense that you're not entitled to any more justice than, than the wrong that was done to you. But then he goes on to say, Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And this is one of the passages that many Christians struggle with. Again, we looked at it last week that Jesus uses an exaggerated form to bring about the seriousness of what was happening. Remember, we spoke about it last week with divorces. The only thing you can divorce for is, is something, is, is marital adultery or something of that nature. Something as serious as that, like total abuse or being slapped around or whatever. And here he says the same thing. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, we may not totally understand what Jesus is talking about here, but the Jews did. Because in those days, if you think of a person being right-handed like me, if I wanted to slap you in the right cheek, I would have to use the back of my hand. Otherwise, I would have to be a contortionist. But I would backhand you. That would hit you in your right cheek. Now, that, in Jewish terms here, was the absolute and ultimate form of insult. That was just it. That was the, it was the worst insult you could pay anybody. Very few people ever actually did it because it was such 
such a serious insult to a person and this is what Jesus is saying here if someone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other one as well in other words it really doesn't matter how serious the offence is that's done against you suck it up you're the Christian you may not like it you may not want it but at the end of the day you have to rely on God to bring about the justice that you need in the situation if we start to take the vengeance for ourselves then we create this chaotic cycle where it never ends where family feuds go on forever where neighbourly feuds go on forever and then when you look back at it you think where did it all start? it may only have started with a harsh word but then because we want vengeance we take a step further and Jesus says stop it in its tracks that's how serious it is and you know if you, if you extrapolate this up to the whole world look at the wars that are going on just now for what reason? what actually started them? disputes about something or other but nobody can actually tell us what so this is a, a law of mercy slap the right cheek the worst insult possible don't take personal revenge that's what Jesus is saying turn the other cheek not that somebody's going to come up and backhand you across the face and neither is, it, neither is he saying anything here remember he's not saying here that if somebody physically attacks you you're not allowed to defend yourself that, that would be nonsense remember that what he's saying here right from the start of chapter 5 is all in a spiritual context it's all to do with how you react to the law and how you keep the law in your heart. And we can't do that without the anointing of the Holy Spirit on us, without that indwelling Spirit who keeps us, who checks us. When we want to rail against somebody and the Spirit of the Lord says, no, don't do it, not this way. Now we have the choice then. He doesn't actually physically put up a barrier, but he does whisper in our ears don't think you should be doing this you need to sort this out and that's exactly what Jesus is saying here if anyone insults you to the utmost degree because you know see when you look at Jesus what did they call him? a drunkard a glutton a heretic a blasphemer I mean how much worse does it get? he was called every name under the sun he was even called illegitimate if you catch my drift I mean they used the worst kind of terminology against him and yet all he could say was Father forgive them for they know not what they do and that applied to you and I we were the ones whom Jesus died on the cross for not just the people in the time of Jesus the law what Jesus is saying here in the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth this is designed for judicial reasons so that a judge can come and say well this man had his tooth knocked out or his ear damaged therefore you have to pay a, 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 some sort of reparation to the man in Jesus' day it actually developed down to a monetary thing it's the same as it does today if you're, if you're knocked over and break your leg and it's not your fault and you make a claim then you're not making a claim so that the guy that broke your leg gets his leg broken you're looking for some sort of monetary uh, reparation for it 
So remember that God is the one who takes the vengeance for you. God is the one who makes sure that, that, that you spiritually are looked after and that physically you're looked after. Don't try and take the vengeance for yourself because the Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. <laughs> if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And that way you will bring him to a humiliation. And God will reward you. So don't take things. Take the insult with no retaliation. Hard to do. In fact, it's impossible without Jesus. And that's the whole point that we're getting to here. The impossibility of keeping these laws in a spiritual sense without Jesus. And then it says... Down that passage, you know, if they slap you in the face, turn the other cheek. If anyone sues you for your shirt, then give them your cloak as well. Now, under the Jewish law, the outer cloak, which was a heavy woolen cloak, was something that people used not only to guard them against the cold on a cold day, but they slept in it. And they had an undergarment, which was... Let's just say for modern day, we'll, we'll talk about a suit and an overcoat, right? Now, that overcoat, no one was allowed to take that off you. By law, no matter how much you owed or how much um, reparation you had to make to somebody else, no one was allowed to take your cloak. And what does Jesus say? If anyone sues you for your suit, in other words, you could have their they had their undergarments or their lower garments off them but they couldn't have their cloak but if anyone sues you for your suit give them your cloak as well because what does that do that's feeding your enemy that's when he's hungry give him something to drink when somebody it, it, it turns what would have been an act of the law and an act of justice into an act of love you want my suit? There's my suit. And by the way, you can have my overcoat as well. You, it becomes an act of love. What does your enemy do when you do that? Knowing full well that the, the cloak was never allowed to be taken under the law, but you give it freely. And Jesus is saying that, that's the way to be. That's the way we should be. We shouldn't take the insults as being personal things if somebody sues you for that then give them the rest as well it's not worth it getting into the argument and through love through love through that act of love through the act of saying to somebody look there's the suit and there's the cloak as well they would be astonished and astounded such a profound act of love would have such an impact on somebody that we would hope it would turn an enemy into a friend If anyone forces you to go a mile, go two miles. Now in those days, under the Romans, Roman soldiers who had a pack to carry or a burden to, to move around, they were quite entitled just to pick somebody off the street and say, Hey you, Derek, pick up my bag and take it down the road a mile. And you were obliged to do it. And the people hated it. They detested it. Simon 
was ordered to do it with Jesus' cross. The cross of our Lord was something that a guy at the side of the street, you pick that up, take it. And he had no option in the matter. If he didn't do it, they would have nailed him to the cross along with Jesus. And it's the same thing here. And you were only allowed, you were only, the Roman soldiers were only allowed to, to, to have your services for one mile. But Jesus says, if somebody asks you to take it for a mile, take it for two miles. Go the extra mile. Give them an act of love. Show them that there's no resentment in your heart to them. <clears throat> Irrespective of the fact that what they do to you is totally unjust and uncalled for and unwanted. But you take it the extra mile and get a smile on your face when you're doing it. And you will have such a profound effect on your enemy that you'll turn them into a friend. And then he talks about asking and giving. Basically saying, you know, when people ask you for money, we're talking about beggars. We're not talking about somebody, you know, two people who are friends or whatever. These are people at the side of the road, and there were many of them. And many, many times, the Jews would refuse to give them money because they felt that <clears throat> they should be able to make money for themselves. And this is the same sort of thing as we're doing indirectly through food banks, etc. You're giving to people who are in desperate need. And we should never refuse to do that. Don't turn away a borrower. <laughs> Sometimes it isn't showing love, even if we give. We're not doing something. We've really got to be in that place with the Lord where when somebody comes asking you to borrow something from you, you've got to say, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Because if you think that it's not going to be beneficial to them, then you obviously refuse. If you think it's going to be a good thing, then you give. Luke chapter 6 expands on this a bit further. And Jesus said, you know, if you're going to lend to people, don't lend to them with the expectation of getting it back. That's not the point. But hopefully we will get it back. If you loan somebody money, if they borrow money from you and you give them it, you, you hope that you'll get it back. But that's not necessarily the case. And what I would say to you is, and that's what Jesus is saying, if you don't want to feel resentment about it, then don't give it. It's like walking the extra mile or being sued for your shirt. If the extra mile is such a burden to you that it produces in you a resentment towards or makes your, 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 your feeling towards your enemy worse, then don't do it. If someone asks you for money, then if you give them it, don't expect it back. I'm sure you'll get it back. So can anybody lend me two grand? <coughs> And, and I'll not promise to give you it back. I'll just say yes. I'll give you it back. One of these days. So we'll end without, ex without expectation. We don't expect to get it back. And, and I don't, you know, I, I've tried to practice this. I've put any practice in my own life. And I tell you this because I don't mean... That 
to bring anything to me. I'm, I'm just trying to follow what God would give me. I've lent people money. And when they've, they've maybe started to pay me it back in bits. A bit here and a bit there. And I can see that they're struggling to pay it back. But the fact that they're trying to pay it back. I then just step in and say I absolve you the debt. Don't, don't bother. You've given me enough. What you've given me is your attitude towards it. That you were willing to pay it back. And I now say I'll take the debt. The debt's cleared. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He took all our troubles, all our sin, and nailed them to the cross. While we were God-haters, while we still hated God, he died for us. And then we go on, this next bit of the passage is probably one of the most looked at passages in the Bible. It's probably the crux of the whole Christian character here. And it's entitled Love for Enemies. And at verse 43 it says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. <coughs> Excuse me. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. That's never what it said. What it said was love your neighbour as yourself. That was what the law said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. There was never anything in it about hating your enemies. That was added by men. And yet people took it on board. Why? Because they weren't reading their Bibles. If I stood here this morning and told you you have to hate your enemies... What would you think? Would you go back and look and see what does it say that? So that was added. I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you've not just to love them, you have to pray for them. Isn't that a good thing? Pray for your enemies. An almost impossible task. How many enemies have I prayed for through gritted teeth or through tears? But we've got to get down to hear what this word love is. And we've spoken about it before. In the English language we only have one word for love and that's love. In the Greek there's four. There's storge, which is a word used for love. If, if you find it in the Bible you'll find it as a referral to a, a, a mother loving her son or a father loving her daughter. The familiar love. That type of love, or a, a sister and a brother who love each other, uh, that family love. That, and then there's the then there's the eros love, 
that is the love that a husband has for a wife or a wife for a husband and it always includes the sexual sense of the word love and in a very very good way I'm not talking about in some sort of dirty horrible way but the, the, the intimacy of a husband and a wife together is the eros that's where we get the word erotic although it's a mistranslation of that and then there's filio which is that brotherly love that's beyond the family that's where you know you love someone who's a good friend you love them to bits I mean how many times have you heard that I just love them to bits and, and that's, that's the filial type of love it's a, it's a pure form of that emotional love but all of these things the, the storge and the, and the, the eros and, and the filial are all based on feelings and emotions and then we come to agape love agape love is not based on feelings or emotions at all it's based on wanting to love Desiring to love. Not because somebody loves you, you love them back. That's what Jesus was saying here, you know. If you love someone who loves you, you know, even the tax collectors and the sinners do that, you know. What makes you different? What makes you different as a Christian, brothers and sisters, is that you love people that hate you. And you don't love them as a brother and you don't love them as a husband or a wife. You love them because you choose to love them. Jesus chose to love us, to agape us, unconditionally. No conditions set down. He just chose to love us and died on the cross that we might receive that love. And in in so doing that we might give it to others. It's not a a love based upon feelings. It's a, it's a, a love based upon an act of will. If you want to be like your father in heaven, Jesus says, then you have to learn to love the way he loves. Jesus still, all these people out there that hate the Lord, that hate God, that don't want anything to do with him, God still loves them. But he doesn't love them as brothers. He doesn't love them as husbands or wives. He doesn't love them as friends. He loves them because they're his creation and he has chosen to love them and that there's no higher love you can do than to actually choose to love somebody irrespective of what reaction you get to it irrespective of whether they want to sue you for your suit and take your coat irrespective of whether they want to take advantage of you and ask you to walk a mile and you have to walk two miles that's the type of love that Jesus is talking about in these two passages here it's an unconditional love that says I don't care how much you insult me I don't care what you do to me I'm going to love you and in that love I'm going to bring about acts of love that will convict you of who you are and hopefully hopefully turn you into a friend people when they see what you put up with how many times have I heard that you know people have said to me and maybe in the, in the height of their anger or whatever they say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not being a doormat for anybody because people are insulting. And I'll say to them, well, you know, I'm very sorry to tell you, but you are a doormat and you've got welcome written right up your back. Even if people wipe their feet on us, Jesus said, love them. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I have great difficulty with that. But we've got to allow God to make that change in us. That's what Jesus is telling us. There has to be that change in you. You've got to allow God to change things in you. You see, when you have an enemy, the last thing you want to do is pray for them. Because when you start to pray for people, things start to happen. The first thing that you have to pray for, though, is to pray for your own attitude of heart towards them. Nothing's going to happen until you change. Your enemy will be your enemy forever unless you change, unless you choose to love. Love your neighbour and men have added hate your enemies. Now, the Jews at this time considered all non-Jews to be their enemies. Anybody that wasn't a Jew was an enemy and that was the part of this passage. Love your neighbours. All all the Jews were neighbours to them but all the non-Jews were enemies and hate your enemies. The Good Samaritan put this bad teaching to rest in Luke chapter 10. Let me just read you if you look chapter 10 because it puts this passage because the outworking of what Jesus was trying to say here was outworked in the passage of the Good Samaritan. It was about neighbours. And it says in Luke chapter 10 verse 25 On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. In other words, if you've got a real hold of that in your heart, you've got a real hold of the character of God. But he wanted to justify himself, this man. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? Because this man's coming from this background that you love your neighbour and you hate your enemy. And of course Jesus went on to tell the story that a man went from Jericho to Jerusalem and some bandits came across him and they beat him and they stripped him and they left him naked by the side of the road for dead. And a Levi came along and thought, I don't have time for this. And he crossed over the other side of the road and left him. And that was supposed to be his neighbour. These were Jews. And then a priest came along and did the same thing. And then, oh, a Samaritan came along and picked him up and tended to his wounds and took him to a hostelry and put him up and said to the man, I'll be back this way soon. If this guy, if you spend any more than I'm leaving, keep a, keep a tab on it and I'll pay in full when I come back this way. And Jesus said to the people, which of these three was this man's neighbour? And that's exactly what he's saying to us. The Samaritans were hated. They hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And I mean really hated. 
So the fact that Jesus was talking about a Samaritan giving succor to a Jew was an absolute... Ugh. You could hear the gasp in the crowd when he talked about it. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, we've spoken about it before. It says, where it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Some people might not want to live at peace with you. But that doesn't let you off the hook for trying to make the peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers or the peace lovers. The peacemakers. We must continually be trying to make the difference. How do we overcome our enemies? By acts of love. That agape love. When we show that unconditional love to people, those acts of love will maybe turn our enemies into neighbours. Everybody's your neighbour. We shouldn't have enemies. They, those people out there who hate us, we've still got to class them as neighbours. Because we as Christians don't have that privilege. We don't have the privilege of, of calling anybody our enemy. That's what the whole thing that Jesus was trying to get past here. Treat people as if they were your neighbours. Pray for them. The Christian should only have neighbours, should never have enemies. That's going to be hard. But that's where we need the Lord. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. You know, the Bible speaks of people being like sons of peace or sons of encouragement, like Barnabas was called a son of encouragement. But if you kind of break it down through, back through the Greek, it just means like an encourager or, or, or a son of peace was a peacemaker. And, and here, that you might be called sons of your father or children of your father in heaven, that you may be called godlike. That's really all he's saying. If you, if, you, if you do these things, people will see in your life and want what you've got because you're godlike. Who can resist God? It's interesting when he says that, you know, he, he allows his son to shine in the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not this son, it's his son. It belongs to God. And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's no personal judgment at this point in time. That passage basically tells us there's no personal, God is not going to judge anyone right at this point in time. Because he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and he sends the sun, you know, the good and the bad. God is gracious to them all. And we have no right to be ungracious to those that we can't get along with. There's no personal judgment at this time. That will come at the second time that Christ comes. When he comes as a king, there will be a personal judgment. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour today, then you're going to stand in that judgment and you're going to be judged for your sin. When Christ comes back, you're going to come to a place where you can either meet God as a judge or as a loving father. The choice is ours. If you love those who hate you, what reward will it get you? And not even the, and not even the tax collectors doing that. And at the end it says, Be perfect therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
And you think, how on earth can I be perfect? There's no such thing. Worldly behaviour doesn't set you apart from the world. When you behave like the world, we just look like the world. It's when we go the extra mile that people are astonished. And hopefully what they see will draw them to Christ. The word there for perfect is a Greek word. I'm just finishing off with this. is teleos. And it doesn't mean to be perfect in the sense of everything in place. The word actually translates to be grown up, to be mature, to be fit for purpose. That's really what, that's what Jesus is saying here. You know, Paul, Paul alluded to it in, in Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I acted like a child. But now that I'm an adult, I've put childish things away. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. In your dealings with people, be grown up, be mature, be adult. Be perfect in that sense that you're fit for purpose. That you're not compromising all the time. This word teleos. If I had a, a screw in a wall and it was half out and I had only my hand and I thought, well, how am I going to get that screw right in? I would go to the shop and I'd buy a screwdriver and I'd think, that screwdriver up fits well into my hand. It's very well ergonomically designed it's good and then I would take it and when I put it in the slot it fitted just absolutely you turn the screw you screw it and job done you would talk about the screwdriver as being teleos perfect for the task ready to do its job accomplished something because it was ready to do its job it was built to do a job and it did its job perfectly my wee granddaughter, Lauren, whenever she'll come to me, she'll say, Grandpa, can you draw me a picture of a train and I'll draw this train? And it's lousy. I mean, but her wee saying is, thanks, Grandpa, perfect. Now, it's not perfect. But it's fit for purpose. <laughs> and, and you know, that's what God's looking for you guys. He's not looking for you to be holy willies. He's just looking you to be fit for purpose. To love your enemies. To pray for those that persecute you. To look upon them and say, I don't care how you feel about me, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to find ways of showing that love for you. Even if it's walking the extra mile. Even if it's giving you my, my cloak when I really don't want to give you it. It's doing these things. That's what Jesus says. That's what's going to set you apart. The people here must have been astonished. They'd never heard teaching like this in their life about how to treat people they'd listened to the Pharisees for years and it was just all thou shalt not and here was an opening up do it out of love and you might even enjoy it even when people insult you and say all manner of things against you because they did it with Jesus so what makes us any different let's pray Father we thank you and praise you for your love for us Lord that you've turned that agape love, that unconditional love, Lord, into all the other types of love, Lord. You've loved us as brothers. And you've loved us as husbands and wives. You've loved us as family, Lord. And yet that overriding agape love just keeps on giving, Lord. You constantly want to show ways of just loving us, Lord. 
just dropping those love bombs on us Lord and I pray that we can do that with the people around us Lord not just with our brothers and sisters but with those Lord who hate us those who resent us those who speak all manner of things against us Lord help us to pray for them help us to find ways of loving them Lord in that unconditional sense so Lord I just pray that as we go out here we go out encouraged at this season Lord when we all talk about love came down at Christmas Lord let that truly be the mantra that we have today that love truly is in the Christian and ready to be outworked that we can be that teleos perfect Lord in the sense that we're adult and mature and fit for purpose we thank you for it Lord and we pray your blessing on us now in Jesus name Amen